listening to that, I was so blessed because some of what they sang tonight is the very content of the sermon this evening, and we did not consult with one another at all, so gave me great assurance this evening. We're going to <clears throat> omit our regular short time of giving a little attention to Pilgrim's Progress, but do want to encourage you to continue your reading. And this week, uh, by the Lord's grace, we will finish that. And then the following week, we will start with part two regarding Christiana and her four boys, and they're following her husband, finally, in the pilgrimage of the Christian life. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles tonight to the book of Isaiah and the 40th chapter. Isaiah chapter 40 this evening. There's a city in Scotland that is primarily known for two things. One of them is that it is the home of golf. And that, of course, is particularly significant if you enjoy that sport. But, of course, even more significant is the fact that it was one of the original sites at which the Lord began what we know as the Scottish Reformation. Every time that a group of our church people visits St. Andrews, we are reminded of that by going to two spots fairly close down to the ocean side where there are spots on the pavement. They are tile mosaics, and they contain the large initials of two men, probably about that wide, about that tall. Each of those men was burned on that particular spot where his initials are today. The first of them was, gave his life for the Lord at the age of just 24. His name was Patrick Hamilton. He was the first of the Scottish martyrs, first Protestant Scottish martyr, 1527. The second of them was about 20 years later. He was 33 years of age. He's actually better known than Patrick Hamilton. His name was George Wishart. He was aflame with what he had come to understand from the Scriptures regarding the true nature of salvation He preached it across the country. He was pursued by the Roman Catholic authorities. On occasion, there were people who were sent out to assassinate him. He had a man who was just a year or two, his junior, who came to protect him on occasion with a great two-handed sword. His name was John Knox. Eventually, George Wishart was arrested. He was taken to St. Andrew's Castle, and he was condemned to be burnt outside the castle, and the place where his initials are is really just from here to the back of the auditorium, from the great castle ruins there. And the morning that he was to die, the captain of the guard there at the castle, who was a man somewhat disposed to respect Wishart, in fact, Wishart viewed him as a God-fearing man, this captain invited Wishart to have breakfast with him and with his family as a last meal. And when they met, during the course of that, Wishart turned it into an observance of the Lord's table. And out of his regard for this man, his thought that he might truly know the Lord and hopefully that his family did as well, Wishart 
distributed a portion of the bread that they had on the table and some of the fruit of the vine. And he urged them to remember that Christ had died for them and that his blood had been shed for them. George Wishart and many other Scotsmen and many Englishmen and women, and in some cases children, died because they had come to understand the true nature of the Lord's table. If you will read J.C. Ryle's work entitled Five English Reformers, you will see that he begins that work with a chapter that is entitled, Why Did Our Reformers Die? And what he demonstrates in the case of each of these men is that essentially the nub of the issue was this table. And they're having come to understand that this is no offering and that to elevate the bread and demand that people bow before it and to teach that it actually is changed into the substance of our Lord's physical body and that the cup is his physical blood, that this is idolatrous. And it was for this position that they died. What we do the first Lord's day of every new month in observing this table is not the offering of the body and blood of our Lord. It is a remembrance of his once-for-all offering of himself on our behalf. And this wonderful salvation that he obtained for us in this way is something that the Scripture speaks of everywhere. It isn't something that the reader of the Scriptures must wait for. Book after book, chapter after chapter, hundreds of chapters finally into the Bible until you come to the New Testament and then to our Lord's sacrifice on the cross, this salvation accomplished by Christ and the great blessings of it is proclaimed freely in the Old Testament as well. And one of the greatest books in all of the Bible is an Old Testament book in this respect. It's the book of Isaiah. Students of this book have long noted that there are some chapters toward the middle of the book, chapters 36 through 39, that are almost entirely historical in their nature during the reign of good King Hezekiah. Those chapters and what they record about him, of course, contribute to the entirety of the message of the book. But those chapters come in between the two great sections. The first, which consists of 35 chapters and that can be summarized, as they often have been, with the one word, ruin. And those are the chapters, as we discovered in our series on Isaiah some years ago, in which God is systematically chastening, judging his people until finally there is a remnant who truly believe that he alone is salvation. And in order to bring them to that point, he must strip them of every single human help. And so many of the chapters in those verse 35... Many of the chapters concern the nations surrounding Judah, nations that the administrators and the 
designers, the strategizers of policy for the nation, nations that they were inclined to turn to for support when faced with the invasion of the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians. And God, chapter after chapter, takes up those nations and he just speaks of the fact that they will be crushed and they will be left to ruin and that anyone who turns to them for support and leans his weight upon them will collapse. Don't do that. Trust in the Holy One of Israel alone. He only is salvation. But included in those chapters, of course, is the foretelling that Judah itself would be brought to utter ruin. And we have the account of that in the historical books, and then we have the great lament regarding that written by Jeremiah entitled Lamentations in our Bibles. The last portion of Isaiah, the major portion that follows that historical interlude, consists of chapters 40 through 66, and they too are summarized under a single word, and that is the word redemption, ruin. God was going to ruin his people, that nation, their capital city, and he was going to do so until they abandoned every human enterprise and came to trust in him alone. Then redemption, chapters 40 through 66. And what we see here in the opening chapter of that section is that redemption, as God foretold it, began with his anticipation of a distant day. And what we read tonight is looking ahead over 700 years. God was anticipating a distant day in which his people would have a desperate need. And the need essentially was this. That exile... Babylonian captivity, the exile, raised questions about God, about his chastening. We understand that, I think, many of us. When God chastens, we can come to be almost beside ourselves with fearful doubts, and agonizing questions. And they are questions concerning whether or not the Lord still has any place for us in His heart, whether there is any hope. Would God be willing to relent and to deliver from the things the crushing things, the ruinous things that actually were His doing because of our sin. And in some cases, the ruin has been so great that we find ourselves wondering if He would even be able to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Many, many agonizing questions. God anticipated that his people would have that need as the centuries went by after the complete destruction of their nation. What God knew that they would need to hear is what we're going to read now. Would you follow with me, please? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, O oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, 
Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Here's a wonderful message that the Lord anticipated His people would need, and it has to do with comfort, and that comfort is addressed right to their hearts. You may note that the word that is translated kindly in verse 2, speak kindly in the margin of your Bible, literally, to the heart. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem. This is comfort for God's people's chastened hearts. And I want tonight to call our attention to this, what we've read, and may the Lord use it tonight to be the comfort to us, to our very hearts, that we need to be able to come again with complete liberty to the Lord's table and the assurance that what we do tonight will not simply be external, but that what we are bearing testimony to is actually what is happening for us, in reality, though invisibly, before the mercy seat of God. These opening two verses are powerful. And they are the Lord commissioning voices. And it is voices plural. These verbs, comfort, Verse 2, speak. Again in verse 2, call out. Those are plural verbs. It is God summoning plural voices. What this amounts to is what we call in our day a call to preach. In the words of the Apostle Paul, how shall they hear without a preacher. In our reading of Bunyan, there is a scene in Interpreter's House that it's very difficult to forget. It's wonderfully difficult to forget. And surely any preacher remembers it where Christian is shown, first of all, the picture of a very grave person hung up against the wall And Bunyan describes it as a man whose eyes are fixed on heaven and the best of books is in his hand and the law of truth is on his lips and he has the world behind his back. He stands as if he does plead with men and a crown of gold is on his head. 
And Christian inquires as to the meaning of this, and interpreter says, this man is one of a thousand. He can beget children. You ever heard of a man like that? That can beget children? He can travail in birth with children and nurse them himself when they are born? It, of course, is the picture of a preacher. I want to ask tonight the men in our church, especially the younger men, are you called to be such a man? Are you called to be a preacher? Maybe you've been avoiding that call. Maybe you have difficulty even giving ear to it. Maybe you turn away from it almost as soon as it's mentioned. Maybe you do that because of the hardship that you may be aware of or because you have assessed the times in which we live and you're very aware of the fact that things are closing down on Christian people. Are you called of the Lord to preach? Is there that possibility that you're called to be one of these, one among a thousand? After George Wishart was executed, it wasn't long before the believers there at St. Andrews were looking to this younger man, John Knox, to take his place. Knox knew nothing of it at the time. One Lord's Day morning, they're worshiping together, and the minister, the person who was doing the preaching that day, begins to speak in a very strange way, begins to speak of the fact that there are times when people recognize the giftedness of another man and they come to believe that he ought to be giving voice to the message that God has given to him. And then he directly looked at John Knox sitting in the pew and addressed him directly and essentially threatened him if he did not yield to this. And then he turned to the whole congregation and he said to them, is not this the charge that you gave me? Is not this the call that we all agreed on? And the congregation spoke out. It is the charge that we gave you. It is the call that we agreed you would issue to him. Knox was so overwhelmed that he left the pew and left the building, left in a great flood of tears, locked himself in his lodgings for days. And then finally agreed and emerged and went into that same pulpit and began to preach, taking as his text a portion of the seventh chapter of Daniel. And he did what Knox all of his days ever after referred to. It was preaching that he spoke of as sounding the trumpet. Maybe there's a young man here. Maybe there's a boy. Yesterday morning... During our men's meeting, Pastor Jones spoke directly to the boys who were present there. Wonderful challenge. And some of you fellows may remember he's using the illustration that he did that was so captivating. Maybe God would have you to give your life to doing that very thing. Taking this treasure that is in earthen vessels and proclaiming it and doing it in the face of stiff opposition perhaps, but doing it because the call of God is on your life and it can't be denied. When I was a student, the teacher of homiletics, or what we called pulpit speech, was a man by the name of Dr. Richard Rupp. And toward the beginning of that class every semester and every class, he had a lecture on the call to preach. And he would begin that lecture by asking us as a class to ask him how he knew he was called. And because I later on was his assistant in the class and sat in those lectures repeatedly, it was always the same. Everyone hesitated to take him up on that and actually address him and ask him, Dr. Rupp, how do you know that you're called? And he would just, he, he would keep prompting until finally someone sort of half-heartedly would say, how do you know you're called? 
And Dr. Up would just pause a moment, and then he would say, with great assurance, he would just say, I just know. I just know. Now, there are factors that can be evaluated, but a preacher just knows. And he knows to the point where he can't be dissuaded from that. That may be the case for some of you here tonight. It is the case for some, and you're preparing to go and take churches, or you're preparing at the university or other places to be able to really minister the Word and pastor people. But it may be that you have not given serious consideration to God summoning voices. Voices to speak to the heart of His people. Voices to speak comfort to their hearts after they have been sorely chastened and broken and ruined in their affairs. And voices to speak to this whole world of lost people in their ruin and their abandon of God. What is the message that is to be taken? It is this in verse 2. Call out that her warfare has ended. And again, I want to call our attention to the margin here. The word warfare is a word that has reference to hard service. It's a hard thing to serve sin. The Scripture says the way of the transgressor is hard. And in the case of people who are God's people, I could put it in these terms, folks. Here would be the better parallel. Not so much to a lost world that has never been given the gospel. This passage has reference to people who their own view of themselves is that they are among the people of God. And yet in many, many cases, they are no true believers. And when they are faced with calamity and trouble, they are well prepared almost immediately to look here, there, and everywhere for help, anywhere but God. It is those people that are addressed here when God says, your hard labor has ended. Your iniquity or your penalty for your iniquity has been removed. You've received of the Lord's hand double for all your sins. The word double, this is very important to understand, does not mean that their sins had been visited with twice as much judgment as their sinning. In other words, it doesn't mean an excess, a multiplication of judgment beyond the actual sinning you've done. What is referred to here is an exact equivalent. Like you would take a piece of paper and you would fold it and the one side is the exact equivalent of the other. It's the double of the other. It's the twin of the other. That is what is referred to here, that when it comes to Israel's iniquity, the iniquity of the Lord's people, that they've received of the Lord's hand an exact righteous equivalent. There is nothing missing in the judgment or the dealing with their behavior, with their trespass, their sin, and their guilt, all has been provided for. I want to ask folks, this is a message, it's a message that God is anticipating that His people would need in the distant future. It's a message addressed right to their hearts. It's assuring them that everything has been taken care of that there's been a great equality between what they have done 
and what has satisfied God in respect to what they have done. And I want to raise the question, what is it that has done that? Did the captivity do that? Fast forward ahead several thousand years. Did the Holocaust do that? Or in more modern times, have these subsequent decades, decades filled with warfare for the modern state of Israel, have these decades of trouble finally done that for those people? And the answer we find when we look at the voices that follow that summons. I want to call your attention to them. You notice verse 3, the first two words, a voice. Verse 6, the first two words, a voice. And verse 9, your voice. There are three here in the passage. The third, let's start at the end and work our way back. The third of those is Jerusalem itself. Jerusalem is to become the one evangelizing, a bearer of good news regarding God and regarding his reign, verse 10, and his reward and his shepherding. Jerusalem and those people are to become that. The second voice in verse 6 is unidentified. But the bottom line on what it proclaims is that what God has said everywhere, but particularly in this passage, that what God has said, verse 8, will stand forever. There's no question about it not coming to fulfillment. The last line of verse 5 says, The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the next voice is told to call out, That word will stand. But it's the first voice with which we're most concerned tonight in verses 3 through 5. A voice is calling. What is that voice? This one is clearly identifiable. You have to understand, first of all, what it's calling for. It's calling for a clearing of the Lord's way in a very wilderness itself. In other words, prepare for the coming of the Lord. And the imagery is taken from ancient times, and really not so much ancient times, even relatively modern times, when you are building a roadway. And it's necessary, of course, to fill in all the depressions, to fill valleys, and to lop off the heights that jut up and out of the terrain and would impede the construction and make the travel even more difficult and expensive. You straighten out the crooked places. You lay down a smooth bed of a roadway. That's the imagery that we have here. Now, folks, that metaphorical language is designed by God to portray one of the most profound things when it comes to being a beneficiary of the comfort that he intends that we have. And what is that profound thing? This becomes very clear when you note that that third verse is quoted by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them. And they all identify the voice. They all identify that particular voice to be that of John the Baptist. And they identify the Lord who is coming to be the Son of God in flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is Luke's gospel that goes on and quotes verses 4 and 5. And in the quoting of those verses, what is apparent from what is said is that the glory of the Lord 
verse 5, that is going to be revealed and that all flesh will see, that that glory is actually God's salvation. In fact, as it's quoted in the Gospel of Luke, rather than the glory of the Lord will be revealed, it's the salvation of the Lord revealed. It's the Holy Spirit in quoting His own words out of Isaiah, quoting them through the pen of Luke. It's Him going a step further and identifying now with specificity the nature or the manifestation of that glory spoken of in this passage that is to be addressed to the hearts of ruined people. The salvation of the Lord will appear to all flesh. So we have the New Testament interpretation of the passage that leaves us without any doubt at all. Now, folks, here is what we need to get at tonight. What is this that the Lord's people are called upon to do by the words, clear the way, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God? Clear the way. Well, again, we're not left in any doubt. You know what John's message was when he came as this voice. John's was a message of repentance. Clearing the way, making smooth, all of that imagery, the fulfillment of that was to be in individual lives And John was preaching to them that there was one coming after him. And that what he was calling upon the people to do was to repent and to show the genuineness of their repentance internally by their acceptance, even as adult people, without shame, without embarrassment, regardless of who might mock, by accepting externally a baptism A baptism signifying, demonstrating their true repentance. Folks, repentance is the thing today that is missing in much preaching, much counseling, and in the thinking of even some of the best of the Lord's people about their Christian lives. There's a great deal of misunderstanding about this. And today there is a wonderful emphasis and a necessary emphasis upon the finished work of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ, the throne of grace standing before God's throne and being entirely accepted there. But all of that must be accompanied by a call for men and women and college students and young people and boys and girls to repent. And when repentance is omitted or when a new theology is formed that argues away the necessity, there is a truncating of what is necessary to finally, truly enjoy comfort at the level of your heart. You must repent. What is repentance? Well, we have a Hebrew word and we have a Greek word, primary words for this. The New Testament word we've noted many, many times is a word that has as its root the mind of man our thinking, and the front of it has a preposition that means to change, to change your mind. But true biblical repentance is far more than just something simply at the intellectual level. The Hebrew word that is translated repent is a word that means to turn again or return. And when you look not just at those words and the times that they occur in the Scripture, what you become aware of is the repentance is a complete change, and it's a change at the heart level. 
It is a change that affects your attitude and your disposition. It is a change in your living. It eventuates in a change, actually, in your lifestyle. We have a catechism card that has to do with this. It's number 67, and it asks the question, what is repentance unto life? And the answer to that is, repentance unto life is the change of heart. And that, of course, scripturally is much more than just simply, I have an alteration in my viewpoint. Or I accept something now, factually, that I wasn't quite convinced is the case, but now I do accept mentally. I've been persuaded mentally. Biblical repentance, folks, is a change at the heart level. It's a change of the heart whereby out of genuine grief and hatred of our sin. And so often we acknowledge this. We've experienced this. You may know this personally. So often what it takes to bring us to sorrow and hatred for our sin is near ruin. Even as the Lord's people, our hearts can become so hardened. Biblical imagery of this is a millstone. These great stones, sometimes with a slight depression in the top, where these people of these primitive cultures would grind grains, and they would do so with other stones formed to do that or to fit those depressions. Those bottom stones, the millstones, were so hard that they would last for generations and generations. A woman could say, my great-grandmother used this stone all her life. She willed it to my grandmother who used it all her days. I can remember from my earliest age my mother using this stone. And now I'm an aged woman and I'm passing this on to my daughter and she too will use it because those stones were hard and they endured generation after generation. And that's the imagery that God uses of a heart that is simply calloused and has become impervious. And the only way that God finally brings sensitivity again and brings people to the point where they're prepared to listen to his message and to turn and have a change of heart is if God himself brings them to nothing. The whole book of Isaiah is a testimony to this. 35 chapters, ruin. And then finally this, comfort my people. But when you call out to them and you speak to their heart that all of this ruin is over and that an equivalent has been found for what they have done, call upon them to change at the heart level. Repent. Isaiah 55 verse 7 is probably one of the finest verses in all of our Bible. And this is what so blessed me by the duet that the men sang before the message because they sang these words. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly, abundantly pardon, abundantly. It's a word that's translated much and many, and great, and various ways like that in your Bible that has reference to an overflowing of this. God's pardon abundantly is what He offers. But He offers it to those not merely who change their theological belief, but to people who forsake People who change, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his vain thoughts, and let him return. That's a description of true biblical repentance. And we saw this morning in the opening of the Gospel of Mark that this is exactly how our Lord began his ministry repent and believe the gospel. 
And at the very end, after he had risen from the dead and he was charging the disciples and giving to them the great commission that they would carry everywhere, what did he say to them? He said to them that it was fitting, it behooved Christ to suffer. They hadn't understood that. Behooved Christ to suffer. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. This is a thing to be preached universally. And it's no wonder then the beginning of Jerusalem began with the Apostle Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And when he finished with his exposition of certain Old Testament texts, what he did is call upon those people, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And when Peter was at the very end of his life, that message hadn't changed. It was the message of the Holy Spirit, and he continued with it right down to the point where he knew that he was going to die a martyr for having preached these things. And he writes that the days are coming. He says to the people reading that letter toward the end of his life, the days are coming when mockers are going to ask, where's the promise of his coming? Since the beginning, all things continue as they've been. The sun comes up morning after morning. It sets evening after evening. Moon and the stars always in the same courses in the sky. Spring and summer, fall and winter, all things continue as they've been. Year after year, century after century, millennia after millennia, where's the promise of his coming? And Peter says, God is not slack. He's not slow concerning his promise, the way some men count slowness, but he is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The opposite of perishing is to repent. Our brethren who were behind Iron Curtain countries, our brethren right now in Ukraine, if you read the prayer letters of Pavlo Parfenyuk, he talks about Ukrainian people who are coming to the Lord in this crisis, but the way they express it is they have repented. He will say, so many people have repented. And they're capturing the essence of this. This, folks, is what is so often neglected today. It's sometimes even rejected today. It's called a work. It's despised as legalism. But when the Apostle Paul was standing before Agrippa and Bernice and Festus, the Roman governor, and giving his testimony, he said that beginning at Damascus, after his conversion, and then at Jerusalem, throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, what he'd been doing was preaching that they should repent and turn to God and do, listen to this, works appropriate to repentance. He's calling them to works. Befitting of, appropriate to a true turning to God. Dear people, this is the necessary accompaniment to experiencing God's salvation at every level, but especially at having a heart that is comforted and you know in yourself things are right and things are clean and you're relieved and you feel like someone who's been sprung out of a cage. God has given you liberty again. It's a new life topography, the filling in and the leveling off, the lowering, the smoothing, the coming to true humility before God. It's collapsing before the grace of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 speaks of it as a sorrow that is according to God. According to God. It's a godly sorrow. It's a sorrow actually that comes from God, and it produces a repentance that you never turn from and that you don't regret. It's a change that God works. 2 Timothy 2.25, if God perhaps may give repentance. It's a gift from God, just as faith is. We have a hymn in our hymn book entitled, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy, written by a man named Joseph Hart in the time of the Wesleys. Come ye needy, come and welcome. 
God's free, bounty, glorify, true belief, and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. God's great bounty glorify. What are you talking about, Hart? I'm talking about this. God's bounty in true belief and true repentance and every grace shown to you by God that finally brings you near. Do this without money, without money. Come to Jesus Christ and buy. And what he's reflecting, of course, is the wonderful words, 55th chapter of Isaiah. Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And ye who have no money, yea, come buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money. Not just water. The richest affair. Wine and milk without money. Come. Come to the Lord. And he gives it. Dear people, this is what is needed perhaps in your life tonight. This is the release. This is the answer. This is the trigger to release. It's doing what perhaps you did at a camp one time at the end of the week. It's throwing your stick in the fire. It's coming to a verdict and ceasing to wallow around in a view of sanctification that essentially keeps you mired year after year after year. There is a time to be done with sin. And though we struggle all of our lives with internal sin and seduction to sin, we fall many, many times. That's a great deal different than taking the perspective. There's never going to be an answer to this. I'm in the depths of despair. I don't see how there will ever be a cure for this. There is such a thing as changing your heart and coming to God. Our catechism question finishes out by saying, with an earnest intent for a new obedience to God. This is what the Bible calls for, and this is what brings God's great grace. I remember as a boy hearing my father once or twice or maybe more, and I'm sure I heard other preachers, telling the story of a young man who left home, greatly grieved and dishonored his parents, went into a great life of sin. And finally, like the prodigal, after years and years, he was brought to himself and he had so hopelessly ruined himself and so disgraced the family that there was great doubtfulness in his mind as to whether his parents would even forgive him. But he broke under the hand of God and he wrote a letter to them and he told them that he was not at all worthy of their love and reunion with them, but that his heart was so overwhelmed and changed. And he told them that on a certain date that he would come by the home on the train and that if they were willing to forgive him, would they please hang a sheet out on the line in the backyard, a white sheet. And when the day came and he's on the train and they're approaching closer and closer, he's more and more filled with anxiety. You can well imagine this. And finally they come around the bend and he's craning his neck to see if there's a sheet on the line. And there is a sheet waving in the breeze out of every window in the house and every door and all the bushes and the trees are covered with white sheets. And folks, that is God. It's all white sheets. It's all come and welcome. But change your heart by the grace of God. Accept the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in your heart to give you a true turning. And then by the grace of God, you will find that what Christ Jesus did on the cross was an exact equivalent for every iniquity, every trespass, every sin, every wrong, it's all been taken care of by the grace of God. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together tonight. We do pray that by your grace we might observe this table in the way that most honors your Son. Give us, we pray tonight, true repentance, true belief. And may none of us draw back in unbelief or in the cradling of any sin to our hearts, we pray. In Christ Jesus' precious name, amen. really impossible to magnify the grace of God sufficiently, isn't it? May the Lord help us tonight to believe everything that He's told us. A man once told me, you know, when God chastens me, often it just makes me harder. But he said, when God is good to me, it breaks my heart. I really understood that. Maybe you do too. Do we realize, folks, that being in this building tonight is God being good to us? On your way to church tonight, coming over the bridge, did you see the grocery card on the right-hand side? Did you see all the tawdry things tied to the grocery cart? Big wheelbarrow attached to the top. It's most likely some homeless person. It was there yesterday. What happened to that man or that woman? There's their whole life in the grocery cart. But by the grace of God, that would be me and that would be you. Never stop and think, you're being here tonight. Is God being good to us? And hearing what we did from the Scripture. So it ought to really tenderize our hearts. Make us very, very glad to part with our sin. And honor the Lord our Savior. Our men are going to distribute the bread and the cup. And as they do so, it gives us some time to be able to quietly in our hearts speak to the Lord and do before Him what we need to do so that we can partake of this with consciences that are washed clean by the blood of Christ again. And do it for His honor to show forth Him and the glory of his salvation. May the Lord help us to do it acceptably. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Dear Father, we thank you for that great work at Calvary where you, through your Son, sending your Son to pay a penalty that we could never pay. Thank you that that blood is sufficient for our cleansing, that we can come in him and in his name and know the freedom and liberty that you've granted to us. Enable us to grasp such love for us that we would walk ever hating those things we ought to hate and loving you more. In Jesus' name, amen. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you do eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show 
the Lord's death till he come. And all the Lord's people said, even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come. Jesus, my Lord, will love me forever. take our hymn books and turn to 248 for our closing number tonight. I think that you'll find the text of this to be very much in keeping with the spirit of our service this evening. might be that you're here this evening without a deep and settled conviction that you do belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Last Lord's Day morning, we gave great attention to the matter of being born again. You must be born again. Have you been born again? Been praying all week that the Lord would keep that question before anyone in our congregation that He knows needs to keep asking Himself or herself that question Have I? truly been born again? Is my problem with sin, is all of the ruin that's taking place in my life, is that actually because I'm not born again? Though I've made a profession and lived around Christian people and done many Christian things, I don't, I don't find in myself the new life, the life of someone who by the grace of God can overcome. Need to seriously consider that question tonight. Have you been born again? And we're going to sing, and as we do so, there's an open invitation here in our building and during our singing, just like there always is before the Lord. Come and welcome. And we would like so much to be of help to you to sort through that. If you'll just slip out of your seat and come forward, there'll be men here. Be very, very glad to talk with you. Your lady will have a lady do that. But you really should not keep toying with that. If you fail, one of the Puritans said, if you fail to repent in this lifetime, then for all eternity you will repent of that failure. You know not what a day may bring forth or the hardness that God may give your heart over to. There's a day of grace. Don't sin it away. We're going to sing tonight, going to sing joyfully and thankfully. We want you, every one of you, to be able to join in that from your heart. But you may need tonight to have a great change in your life. And by the grace of God, you can, and He will do that for you if you call on Him. Let's stand together and sing. 248.
just follow these words, there's a dark stain. No human eye may see it, but we cannot hide it from God. What is there that can possibly wash that away? Think of David in the 51st Psalm where he has to plead with the Lord, Lord, to cleanse me from blood guiltiness. Imagine having that stain in your soul, the murder of a human being. Dark is that stain. What can avail to wash a stain like that away? Only the blood of Jesus Christ. And look, that crimson tide flows and you can be whiter than snow today. Did you come tonight? You may have sat through many invitations like this and you know the Lord's spoken to your heart repeatedly. Again tonight, He's tugging, calling, promising. Why don't you just abandon your pride? Don't think about other folks and what they may think. All you need to think about is the Lord, being sure you know Him. I'm going to sing this last stanza. Let's do so. Stanza four. that in our minds this week. Good night. We're dismissed.